Coming to you from the front lines of America's fight for freedom, it's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. What this world needs is a few more rednecks. So people ain't afraid to take a stand. What this world needs is a little more respect for the Lord and the law and the working man. We can use a little peace and satisfaction. Some good people up front take the lead. A little less talk and a little more action. And a few more rednecks is what we need. Happy Veterans Day weekend, everyone. Coming to you from the front lines of the battle for America in the capital city of the free state of Florida. Matt. Most of the time I ask you what happened this week in the news to start things off. I almost feel like asking you this week, what didn't happen? Yeah, it was a full week. We had a lot going on. Of course, we were watching the um, presidential debate Wednesday night. We had um, lots going on on the international stage. We had Trump doing counter-programming. We had in Florida the um, special session in the Florida legislature. So, yeah, it was a full week. Yes, it was. I think that uh, a couple of things I want to sort of get out of the way or off the uh, table here before we get into talking about the debate, which is the main topic for today, is the elections in Virginia mainly, although there were elections all over the place, but I want to talk specifically about Virginia. And then also this surprise announcement that I don't think anyone saw coming from Joe Manchin that he's not running for re-election in the state of West Virginia. Yeah, he's a little bit older than I realized, 76. Um, I know he's been talked about as a potential savior of uh the independent voter if he were to be a presidential candidate and all that uh but he's, yeah. he's been talked about a potential running mate actually sure for for uh, either trump or desantis uh in that like, same vein like the eisenhower candidate or or figure who is recruited by both parties to run for president yeah exactly exactly um any thoughts on the virginia elections i mean the press is really trying to make a lot out of the ohio abortion vote and a lot out of the virginia elections about how this is somehow a counter-revolution to the republican revolution uh and that somehow joe biden is going to be able to use this to build some momentum going into next year what's your thoughts it's hard to connect those dots just because biden's numbers are so bad and i think anecdotally as you talk to people throughout the community both on the left and the right side of the aisle there's a lot of discouragement about Biden in the state of our country, the state of the leadership. I, I think, I mean, you can talk this stuff to death, but I think individual elections in individual states don't always translate into a national mood or a national theme. Uh, there certainly were some candidates, some individual candidates uh, in, in some of the, in some of those states that, uh, you know, they, they were being voted upon for issues other than the national issues. Uh, I do think the Ohio vote on abortion is surprising. I think uh, DeSantis made some comments in the in the debate about how the pro-life movement is getting caught flat-footed on some of these issues, which I think is true. I don't, I don't think there's an organized effort to, to try to – let me be careful how I say it. There's probably not as much of an organized or well-funded effort on, on those issues. So it'll be interesting to see as that happens – in other states, potentially in Florida, and you know, it's a real that is definitely an issue to keep the eye on. Yeah, I think that it's been interesting to watch because I think that the Republicans were much better organized on the abortion fight when it comes to the legal battle uh, than the uh, Democrats were. But when it comes to the politics of it all, 
the Democrats have been quick to jump to the standardized talking point, saying that Republicans are anti-woman, that they're anti-health uh, care. Uh, you know, in some ways, they're that they are uh, trying to be these hyper control freaks from a government standpoint and uh, trying to steal some of our talking points uh, to use against us related to freedom and libertarianism. It is difficult, though, to look at just one vote, I think, like in the state of Ohio, and somehow project that as a trend line across the country. There's a lot of states where that same measure would have failed. And I think in the state of Florida, because we have a stronger measure for our constitutional ballots, uh, it's not necessarily true that the same thing's going to pass next year in Florida. Yeah, and I think a lot of these uh, pro-choice, pro-life issues, a lot of times there's deception in the language, and a lot of times people are voting for something that they don't fully understand. Um, It would be interesting to dive in a little bit deeper on the Ohio issue, but certainly that is one of the issues that's going on with the proposed amendment in Florida is deception. There's some language in there that's not clear. It talks about health providers, very blanket term that kind of covers everybody. So uh, it's important to educate the voters and to make sure they know what they're voting on. I think Republicans are going to have to get their policy right in terms of implementing uh, abortion restrictions because the main talking point the Democrats are using right now is that the doctor and the mother, if they ever pursue an abortion, is going to go directly to the electric chair. That's kind of the general uh, sort of sensationalized messaging they're using, and I think they're using that to scare people. Um, Yeah, even Nikki Haley was kind of harping on that point in her in the debate. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, Let's go to the mansion uh, retirement. What do you think that does in West Virginia? Does that provide us with an opportunity to get a senator there that's actually more conservative than Joe Manchin and will caucus with the Republicans, or does it put us in jeopardy? Yeah, conventional wisdom is that it'll be a Republican pickup, which is, of course— the you know the Republican is hairline divided or sorry the the Senate is is uh, on a hairline divide so just one seat is huge um, you know I, who knows we'll have to see who runs we'll have to see who's who's the most viable candidates but that's a state that I think went for Trump like sixty five percent something like that so it's it's definitely should be a red state pickup. Well, I think we can discuss all these things. Obviously, the hottest thing that happened this week was the Republican debate, although I don't know. Uh, in some ways, it felt almost a little bit less relevant than the first two debates. That's the way it felt to me with all this other news that was going on. I think the people are kind of getting settled in, thinking about the, the uh, directional push on this Republican nomination process right now, and maybe weren't as interested, uh, even though it was in Miami, and it, it did hold some interest here in Florida. Matt, today we've got our man Mike Hanna, uh, world-famous Mike Hanna, who's uh, been in the trenches with us since uh, the, ni- the early 90s on uh, the Bush campaigns and then helped us out with various campaigns along the way and has become a super PAC and political committee consultant extraordinaire based in uh, Alexandria, Virginia. Mike, welcome to the call today, my friend. Yes, thanks for uh, having me back. It's a, uh, it's a chilly, rainy day up here in the swamp. Well, I just want to point out that just like Denzel Washington basically bullied Hollywood into finally giving him the Oscar, I felt like you criticized me and Matt so much, even publicly, about not having returned guests that we finally just buckled to the pressure to have you come back on. Well, you know, I made the pitch last week when you were at your uh, 50th reunion at the Citadel that uh, Matt and I should just co-host, but it didn't quite come together. So uh, I'll be the guest this week. That will do. 
Yeah, I'm going to pretend that I didn't hear the uh, co-host suggestion Kramer style there. Um, hey, so uh, <laughs> so what do you think, buddy? Um, this was the third, I guess, formally organized presidential debate. Uh, Matt and Mike, I'm interested just for the sake of our audience. What did you think? Was it better than the other two? Worse? Give me some initial thoughts on it. So my, my first thought, well, first let me say, I think Joe Manchin's a little on the young side to be running for president. He still has a couple cycles in front of him. So let's, uh, let's see how, how his future unfolds in politics. He's only 76, a little young. Plenty of time, uh, plenty of time. Yeah. So, you know, I thought this was a good debate. I, I think the narrowing of the field made it a little more organized. The substance was better. Um, the moderators were okay. They were a little full of themselves as always. Uh, but I thought from a, from a policy, uh, you know, viewpoint, this debate was, it, it let, it offered a lot more than the other debates that kind of, that were fun, but they kind of spun out of control. So I thought this was a, I think it's getting better as we narrow the field and it probably should go down to two now. So. Yeah, even in the spin room afterwards, they interviewed DeSantis first, and he said that, and he he uh, complimented NBC for putting on a good debate, and said that he thought the the questions in the conversation was more substantive. There was a lot less, almost, well, I shouldn't say none, but there was very little talking over or competing for time. I don't know if it was just everybody's a little bit more comfortable, or because, as you said, Mike, there's a smaller field now. Uh, people just they, they seem like they were more willing to. Um, play by the rules and, and wait for their opportunities. We still had some feisty moments. Ramaswamy seemed to want to take on everybody in the room. Um, but, yeah, it was more substantive. I agree with that. Yeah, I couldn't help but notice <clears throat> as uh, they were going back and forth jousting that there seemed to be a very, very disciplined sense of not wanting to intrude on the other person's comments. And I think that helped, helped straighten things out. Um, look, We've got three more segments to talk about this debate, and I think that one of the great things, Matt, that I'd like to do in the next segment, and uh, Mike, we did this in the last or, or in the post-wrap-up and after the last debate, was Matt led us through some clips of the debate so that we could analyze them and sort of grade out each one of these candidates. So um, I think everybody, if you can, hang with us through the break. We're going to come back. We're going to listen to some of Matt's clips and uh, enjoy this start to our Veterans Day weekend talking about the future of America and our Commander-in-Chief. Bringing you right to the front line of liberal insanity. Watch out for that first step, it's a doozy. And back again, America in View will be right back. Freeing the world from their liberal chains. It's Matt and Brent Doster with America in View. Okay, welcome back, everyone. We're talking the Republican presidential debate, and uh, Brett and Mike. It to me feels a little bit like those bowl games that they play, you know, before Christmas or between Christmas and New Year's. There, with everything going on with Trump, with where the polls are, yeah, it's kind of hard to to really think of these uh, debates as being as consequential as maybe we thought they were in the beginning. Um, and so there there was not as much of what I would call the applause line moments in the, in this debate. We did pick a few clips and we'll play those. Uh, Maddie, why don't you play us that first segment from DeSantis? 
And he said Republicans were going to get tired of winning. Well, we saw last night, I'm sick of Republicans losing. In Florida, I showed how it's done. One year ago here, we want a historic victory, including a massive landslide right here in Miami-Dade County. That's how we have to do it. So this was a big applause line that DeSantis got right out of the gate in his opening remarks, kind of his first question about what distinguished him from Trump and why he should be the, the nominee. Um, we've talked about this a little bit already, but you know, what do you take about this? And do you think that the other candidates were were prepared to explain the election losses? I'm going to defer to Mike on that one. I've got some specific thoughts on this. I want to come in after him. Mike, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, I think he's right. I, I think we have done nothing but lose for you know multiple election cycles now. I uh, I'm up here in Virginia. I, we had elections this week. I told my uh, you know, associates that we were going to lose um, here. And it was, you know, the national press, I, I predicted that they would blame it on Youngkin and say it's a rejection on Youngkin, and they have, but it's not. Uh, Youngkin is quite popular and, and, and doing a good job up here. But the bottom line is the Democrats are spending a lot of money. And, you know, whether you agree or not, they are effectively messaging sort of a combination of January 6th, election denying, um, abortion extremism, and just hitting MAGA. And, uh, you know, these seats were tough seats up here, at least in the legislature. They were they were swing seats, maybe even pro-Biden. But that messaging is working. I saw a lot of ads. And our ads were, were, were still hitting the crime um, that is legitimate. But it doesn't seem to be registering the same as uh, as their messaging. So we need to figure that out. But DeSantis is 100 percent correct that we keep losing. He won. So we probably need to look at uh, changing our uh, strategy. Yeah. So, Mike, I, I look, there's some elements in here that we agree on. Let me just say this, though. The, the um, part of these debates is trying to set yourself apart and to try to uh, win the hearts and minds of the great percentage of the Republican base. And uh, look, I have been muted in my criticism of DeSantis because I legitimately think that he is probably the best option that we have of the entire field as of right now. You know, I I was a little disappointed that Pence dropped out because I thought he added a, a layer of maturity to the conversation that we haven't had in the past. But overall, given his track record, given his military service, given his youth, he's got a wonderful family. I think that DeSantis, and he's been strong on conservative issues, I thought that DeSantis gives us a great shot to win. He's that picture of presidential leadership that we need. But I think that this opening up, hitting Trump, it plays to the wrong side of the Republican base. Uh, it also plays to the media and to donors, and I understand why he wants to do that because he's trying to consolidate support as the anti-Trump. Uh, to try to position himself to ultimately win. But, again, I, I don't know if there's enough people out there that really believe that Trump was enough of a disaster in his first term uh, that, that, he's, that he should be subject to criticism. So um, I think at the end of the day, uh, yes, most of the Republican base is tired of losing for the last two to three, three years, maybe two to four years, but overall – they look at Trump as being a fighter, somebody who's going to take on the establishment. And you got to find a different messaging vein, I think, to convince people that you're the guy. So I, I think that at the end of the day, DeSantis probably should 
again, I think maybe started out with less contrast with Trump and maybe focused a bit more on his own record and then talked about um, beating just Joe Biden, period, right, instead of making it this big contrast with Trump. But that's just me. Uh, we'll see how it plays out in the next couple of weeks, but I thought maybe that was a little bit of an overreach on his part. So what did you guys make about Ramaswamy? He he basically took on everybody in the room. I kind of lost track, but he took on NBC News and kind of the, the news media for um, deception on the last few elections. He took on Ronna McDaniel, the head of the RNC. He took on Nikki Haley and her daughter. He took on Democrats for not being honest about who their nominee was going to be. He definitely seemed to discard his pivot from the last debate of trying to play a little bit of a nice guy card. What was going on there, Mike? What do you think? You know, you, you nailed it. He, uh, you know, the last debate, he was like Eddie Haskell. He was complimenting everyone, complimenting the vice president, Pence. He was, uh, you know, he had his pompadour and full, you know, swing. <laughs> and he was just, uh, he, he tried the nice guy card. And apparently he went back and decided it wasn't working for him. He, he was going to go back to being, you know, kind of smug and a jerk. And, you know, I, I've kind of gone through those iterations in my own life, so I get it. But he, he did not come off well. I think the uh, the Vivek uh, boomlet is has kind of come and gone now. I think you saw that with some of the other candidates too. So it, it's uh, he just seemed very disrespectful again, and he's the smartest guy in the room. Just ask him, right? Yeah, exactly. Let's play a quick clip, Maddie. Go ahead with Ramaswamy. Here's what history teaches us. Anti-Semitism is a symptom of a deeper cancer in a country, in a society that is lost. And we are lost. Several years ago, when I wrote my first book, Woke Inc., I was talking about they were chanting death to America, death to white people, death to Christians. Nobody was waking up back then. Now it's even bad. Now they're saying death to Israel and worse. Yeah, so this was like one of his better moments, I thought. He, he's done a good job of pointing out that the the, the things going on with anti-Semitism on college campuses is not really surprising because it's consistent with a theme that has been going on in academia for the last few decades. Uh, and I like on the cultural wars, I think he can come up with some, um, some strength in his definitiveness, but th this was one of the better moments and it was one of the rarer moments. The rest of the time he was very combative. Yeah, I agree, Matt. Look, I think that Vivek is the Alan Keyes of 2024, the 2024 cycle. So he's articulate. He reels off rhetoric with ease. It's It sounds very unrehearsed, even though I think this guy probably stands in front of the mirror and rehearses for hours every day. But it sounds very unrehearsed. But then he has these moments where he becomes so aggressive at the wrong moment. I mean, hitting Nikki Haley for her daughter and TikTok, I thought was the lowest point in any of these debates. She responds by calling him a scumbag. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, look, I think that Vivek in that one moment just cratered whatever credibility he had left. And I think it's over for him. I, I could be wrong, but I think that killed him. Not only did he... Not only did he call out his her daughter, he said something to the effect of uh, "keep get your family in line" or something like this. When Nikki Haley went into the spin room, she said that her daughter's twenty five. So I mean, it's sort of just a laughable, you know. You can you can see the hacks in the back room trying to come up with what their attack lines are going to be. He sounded like a thirty eight year old snarky. Uh, I'm going to show you how smart I am because I've got details on this that you don't even know about your own family. I mean, it was so stupid. Yeah, and just the body language between those two. I feel like he's the eighth grader that's 
got a brain and she's like the senior in high school and she can still beat him up if she wants to. It's like this really funny dynamic between the two of them. And then they like refuse to, to shake hands afterwards and all this. All, it's just a kind of a circus sideshow, but it's very entertaining. Yeah. Mike, what did you think about that? Do you think that Vivek recovers from that comment or do you, I mean, he's got the money to recover, but do you think that he carries on all the way through Super Tuesday or do you think he starts to think about pulling out? Yeah, I think it depends on when OAN offers him his own show, and that's probably when he jumps. But, uh, you know, when he called Nikki Haley Dick Cheney in high heels, I, I thought that was a little kind of crossing the line, but maybe because maybe I, I guess he was criticizing neocons and, and, you know, the old hawks in our party. But I like Dick Cheney, so I, that was not an insult to, to me, I didn't think. But then, yeah, bringing the daughter in, kind of he loses – all credibility so he he will continue i think in this race but i i think it's down to two two folks in the non-trump uh uh you know race here so the next candidate is is the next candidate is the no clip candidate which is chris christie i didn't pull anything for him i thought he was half asleep the whole time and really doesn't seem to prepare we've got a few uh about 30 seconds before the break but what are your thoughts on christie mike so my dad texted me. So my mom's very uh, pro-Trump. She's MAGA. My dad is more kind of looking to see who he wants. He's an, he's an undecided voter. But he texted me and said, the two guys on the end need to go. They need to they need to drop out. And he's talking about Tim Scott and Chris Christie. And I, I, I agree. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, you know, he doesn't get the idea that there are any rehearsed lines, anything memorized, anything like that. So... We'll keep up the conversation. We've got a few more candidates to go through and listen to. We're reviewing the Republican presidential debate back after the break. They're 10 pounds of common sense in a five-pound bag. Matt and Brett will be right back. From the front lines of the fight against socialism, it's America in View. All right, we're back after a uh, stimulating second segment talking through some of the details of the Republican presidential debate this past Wednesday. Here we are at the end of the week, Matt, going into Veterans Day weekend, and I think we got a few more clips from a few other candidates, uh, both Tim Scott, maybe we'll consider one from Nikki Haley, but I think we're trying to grade this out and figure out if anyone really scored an advantage. So I'm going to flip it back over to you to get through a couple more of these clips, and let's dice and slice here. Matty, let's play the uh, Tim Scott clip. We should go to our southern border and close our southern border with the resources necessary. I believe that we have sleeper terrorist cells in America. Thousands of people have come from Yemen, Iran, Syria, and Iraq. If we are going to deal with the national security emergency at our border, we have to do it now. Then there was another moment where they were uh, asking some of the uh, some of the questions in um, Scott gave a number, which I really appreciated. He said, look, we can close the Southern border for $10 billion and then for another 5 billion install some additional surveillance to basically keep it even uh, and safer and more effective. Um, so I, this was a more substantive moment. It wasn't a big applause line or anything like that, but I, th- I thought he came through with some specifics and, uh, and, you know, gave us something to chew on. When you think about how much money is being spent on a lot of the other international crisis, uh, crisis, crises going on right now, um, shoot, $15 billion doesn't sound like much. Yeah, it seems like a rounding error. Mike, what's your perspective on Scott uh, from uh, 
Virginia. I mean, how is he perceived in your neck of the woods and in the circles that you run in? Is this guy credible, or do people continue just to think of him as a senator? I think he's a senator and a statesman and a good one, but I don't think you know they see him taking that leap to president. And I don't think he he just doesn't seem to have um, the fire to do it. I feel like him, like like Matt said, I feel like him and Chris Christie were kind of mailing in the the debate. They they, uh, they were good, they were fine, but it, it didn't seem like their heart was even in it. So you know maybe it was an off day or uh, or they they see that the end is 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 near for their uh, for their presidential hopes. I thought that I thought that Tim actually did better when he was taking the gloves off a bit and was jousting with Nikki Haley on some of her record, particularly on some of her personal enrichment and uh, some of her tax votes, uh, because it made him look a little bit more what I would call um, uh, maybe ready for you know taking on the world. But I agree with you in his style. It's hard not to love the guy. I mean, and and his talk, I love his talking points. I love you know the things that he talks about with faith and family and the constitution uh but again when i hear him talk and he's even when he starts throwing out some of those details he feels very much to me like a united states senator that we need to keep in the united states senate as opposed to someone to move over to the white house it's interesting with the five people in the field some of the roles were consolidated uh definitely tim scott referenced scripture uh he talked about his faith he He's, I think, taking on the lane that Mike Pence was in. I mean, they were both competing it, competing for it at one point, but the Christian conservative or religious conservative, um, Christie is by himself in the in the sort of most strongly anti-Trump lane that that Asa Hutchinson was trying to play in. It's interesting to me about Nikki Haley. She's her credentials are always mentioned as the UN ambassador. There's not a whole lot made of her time as governor, um, which you could argue from an executive position as a much more important um, background. But uh, only when there are some negatives that people try to go after her on the record will they talk about her being a, a governor or a former governor. Um, but she definitely seems to be taking on the role of the you know world leader. I've been an ambassador. I've dealt with some of these international leaders and so on. So it, it's just interesting to see how those roles have been consolidated. Can I, can I speak to that for a second, Matt? Because I thought that was actually – you know, this was a, I guess, foreign policy, military, you know, national security debate. I thought that Nikki actually really had some strong moments where, where she sounded <laughs> she sounded better, frankly, than everybody else on uh, her analysis of America's place in the world. She sounded better about the, uh, the uh, hostility that is projected toward the United States from the China, Russia, North Korea slash uh, you know, Iran axis of opposition and evil. Uh, she sounded credible on her solutions and her strategy, her sense of strategy internationally. But I will also hand it to her. I thought there was a moment, you know, this is what's frustrating to me is that no one is talking about, we talked about this on last week's show. No one's talking about taxation. No one's talking about um, the national debt. No one's talking about the fact that uh, right now, you know, all the politicians are talking about how to make America great again and how to bring American jobs back. But they're not talking about the fundamental problem, which is the regulatory system coming out of Washington, D.C., the taxation system coming out of Washington, D.C., the war that is being waged on American free enterprise. And why do these big companies want to bring their jobs back here? They can't do business here. Even the national litigation environment is so uh, difficult right now 
that people, when they think about the cost of labor, the cost of insurance, the cost of everything, it's made more by this government intrusion. So they're looking to take their workers elsewhere and take their, their products elsewhere to be manufactured. So I thought that Nikki Haley actually switched on to that pretty good to talk about trying to get America's economic engine running again. And DeSantis picked up on that a bit. We have got to get that worked out before we can think about funding this big military that we feel is necessary to keep America strong. That's a great segue for our next two clips. Maddie, let's play the DeSantis clip. They will export authoritarianism all around the world as the cost of doing business. They will impose things like social credit scores and internet monitoring. So this is to this generation, what the Soviet Union was to the post-World War II generation. I've already released a plan. We're going to get to 355 ships at the end of the first term, 385 ships at the end of the second term, but we're going to have a path to 600 ships over the next 20 years. So he was talking about China, and I thought he did a good job here of connecting the dots for a generation that that maybe isn't uh, as aware of the Americanism versus communism divide that a lot of us grew up with ha- having that curriculum in school and saying, look, you know, here's China. They're, they're uh, maybe even more dangerous than what we faced in previous generations. Uh-huh. This It's kind of interesting to me, this, you know, how many ships do we have thing. Um, I thought DeSantis had an answer ready to go. I don't know if he was um, prepared for that in some way, but he, he definitely had some numbers. They're ambitious numbers. I don't know a whole lot about how much ships cost, but getting to 600 ships sounds pretty expensive. So then let's get to Haley's clip right after that. Maddie, go ahead. We also need to be not energy independent, energy dominant. We are blessed with resources. Let's do it. But the reason no one should give you a number, Hugh, on the amount of ships in the Navy is because in a few years, our interest expense is going to be more than our defense budget. So no one can give you that number realistically without first tackling what's happening with the financial situation. So this is exactly what you're talking about, Brett. She got into just the numbers. You know, can we afford this stuff? What's the state of our economy? How are we going to afford to do all these things? We talked about that last week and looked at some of the numbers on our national debt, just how daunting the number is with interest rates much higher now, how much our interest payments are. So you think about that. We're going to pay more in interest than what we're paying for our defense budget. How is this sustainable and how can you how can you do it without some really massive overhauls? Well, it's not sustainable unless they start printing hordes of new dollar bills and that's going to drive inflation higher and it's going to crater our economy more. Uh, the reality is we have a massive economic problem. Let me ask you and Mike a question real quick. I, actually, I thought that Hugh Hewitt, he was my favorite questioner from all three debates. I mean, he's obviously a conservative. He's a smart guy. I don't agree with him on everything, but I thought he asked good questions. But I want to ask you guys something. How many ships do you think we had in the American Navy at the end of World War II? Mike, you got a guess? I've got no guess. Matt? You would be a terrible Price is Right contestant, Mike. You've got to guess something. I'm going to guess. Uh, that was that was before my time. I, I know Brett was there. But. Yeah, Brett barely remembers it. I, I'll say 400. 400? Yeah. Try more than 7,000. And so, how big were they? <laughs> well, this is where I'm going with that answer. Okay. The, again, look, I've been through presidential uh, briefings before, right? For these debates, going back to 2012 and then, of course, in 2016. And I know how this thing works. You have these guys walk in with these big briefing books, and you have candidates, many of them who don't have military experience, 
sitting down talking about things that they really don't know that much about. And so they think the right answer is, well, we need to get to a 300-ship Navy or we need to get to a 600-ship Navy. But what does that mean? I mean, is that 600 tugboats? Is it 600, you know, uh, Boston whalers that are outfitted with machine guns? I mean, you know, what does that mean? And I don't think that the candidates really went deep enough into their answer. And that's one reason why I think each one of these candidates on the stage on Wednesday night uh, kind of missed the boat in really setting themselves aside from everyone else as being that leader who's ready to step into the White House. Well, DeSantis, I mean, he's, you know, he was in the Navy, so presumably he knows something. I thought Christie was almost humorous in his ad lib on nuclear submarines. He I mean, was I, thinking about sandwiches. Yeah, I, I don't I don't get any idea that he had thought about it until the question was asked. And then, he, you know, somewhere in, in the background, he was like, ah, let's talk about submarines. <laughs> hey, we're going to end this segment right now. We're getting into break. Uh, Mike, be on standby. You guys wait. We're going to wrap this thing up in the fourth segment to talk about who should be the next commander in chief of the United States. Well, I still got don't go anywhere. And you will be right back. Little sister, don't you? Little sister, don't you? Freeing the woke from their liberal chains. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. Okay, folks, welcome back. We're wrapping up our discussion on the Republican presidential debate earlier this week. We would be uh, out of line not to mention that today is the Marine Corps birthday from uh, birth in 1775, older than our country. And uh, happy birthday to all the Marines out there. Well, Matt, Matt, I'd like to say one special happy birthday to our favorite Marine, Russell S. Doster, who served as a corporal in combat in Vietnam and came back with a Purple Heart and the Vietnamese Cross of, of Gallantry. Happy birthday, Pop. Absolutely. Happy birthday. Um, so we're going to play one clip. This one's a little off topic from our national interest. Let's uh, play this last clip from DeSantis. I abolished that agency that she's talking about. No, Enterprise he- Florida, we abolished it. So this is a little bit humorous to me. Brett, you worked in economic development in the governor's office uh, 20 years ago. Did you ever think that abolishing Enterprise Florida would be a line in a presidential debate? <laughs> that is a great question. Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, it's interesting to see the way that the politics have shifted on the role that government has, particularly state and local governments have, on attracting and making deals with big corporate behemoths to come in and change the landscape of their economy. And I'll give you one good example, Matt. You know, I was in Charleston last weekend for my Citadel reunion. And what's happened to Charleston in the last 20 years has been specifically because South Carolina went in and made a deal with Boeing to come into South, uh, Charleston. And it has, I mean, that, that city has exploded and all the economic spinoffs that have occurred there have been incredible for their economy. So these are typically the roles that aggressive states have played. Uh, Mike, you can remember when economic development was definitely part of the role of a state government. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to see how the politics have changed. And I certainly never expected to see that line in a presidential debate. Okay, the final uh, piece of discussion, they did get into the substance of how can we afford our government, how can our how, how can all this uh, be sustained by talking about entitlements, Social Security. Um, how do you think they did on this? There was, there was some nuancing, if you want to say, some uh, reluctance to maybe commit. I thought that the, the moderators 
gotten to their gotcha moment of trying to pin people down to a, raising the age to a certain number or something like that, which they all, all of them avoided saying. Um, but I thought it was a good and necessary discussion. How do you rate them on that particular topic? Mike, you remember that this defeated, this very debate defeated the first candidate that we ever worked for in 1994. I'm interested in your thoughts on this. How do you think they played it? Yeah, I mean, they were all very, very uh, cautious to not fall into the trap of putting out an age, of raising the age or setting a number, right, that could later be used against them like it was back in 1994 against uh, Governor Bush, you know, the scare tactics the senior scare calls. Um, you know, I think I think we texted during this. It wasn't a great answer by DeSantis. I, I wish he had just said, or anybody had just said, listen, we, we don't need to raise the age if we rein in our spending and we, we make hard decisions and we, we address the issues we need to address. It's as you alluded to it earlier, it's this mindset of uh, we have to keep spending and we have to keep taxing and we have to, you know, raise taxes and spend more. And nobody's, nobody's saying, listen, we don't have to have that mindset. We, we can, we can rein in our spending. One of the interesting things uh, on this, on this particular topic, you know, George W, he went after, he wanted to do these privatized accounts. Uh, you had some of the people on stage saying, well, if you're rich, you shouldn't be collecting Social Security, which is kind of interesting because the premise, even going back to FDR, is that you're paying in and, you know, you, if you're paying in, you ought to get it back out. So if you get into this means-tested world where, you know, oh, you don't need Social Security, then it really – it's truly just another tax at that point. Um, both Tim Scott and DeSantis, I think – I think DeSantis used the line – uh, promise made, promise kept to indicate, hey, we're not going to take this away from you. Uh, Tim Scott made a plea to his mama and his granddaddy, I think, yeah, something I to that, that was, effect. I thought that was weak. Saying we're not going to take your Social Security. Um, you know, but ultimately, I, th I the underlying issue, I think, was touched on by Ramaswamy earlier in the debate when he said, we just need to, we need to produce more of everything, which I think is the right answer. We need more productivity in this country. We need more work. Um, there are a lot of people being paid by our government not to work who did not work and put in money through Social Security. So in other words, people on various assistance programs who've learned how to you know, exploit every, deep, uh, every loophole in the system. So there's a lot of fat that can be cut to try to get our country back to work. And it would have been nice, I think, for somebody to make that point a little more strongly. Matt, uh, there's one little town in Texas that was allowed to opt out of Social Security as it was uh, founded. And that little town has their own pension plan, and it has done exponentially better than anyone else on Social Security, and it's solvent. And uh, I, I wish that somebody had pointed to that, because I, I don't think that anyone who's under the age of 30 really believes that Social Security is still going to be there for them. Um, Matt, we're running we're, – look, we're at six minutes into the segment. I want to hear from you and Mike. Did anybody lose anything? Real quick, uh, Mike and Matt, uh, let's run through the, the people. Was it a plus night for Chris Christie, or did he lose? Lose. Lose. All right, let's talk about our, our man, uh, Tim Scott. Was it a winner night or a loser night for him? I would say, on balance, more of a lose, but I think he did pretty well. I've got to point out, Chris Christie kept calling the um, female moderator Kirsten, and her, num her name is Kristen. <laughs> it was a really bad night for him. Yeah, he should have stayed at the Golden Corral. Um, let's talk about... Um, let, let's talk about Vivek. 
Uh, did Vivek win anything or did he lose? Mike, you take that one. Yeah, I think I think he lost, and I think he's uh, at the end of the line. All right, so let's talk about Nikki Haley, and it sounds like those two probably had the better nights, but did Haley win anything or did she lose on Wednesday night? Yeah, I think it's kind of, I think the race for second place is between DeSantis and Haley. I mean, DeSantis has kind of maintained that position, but she she seems to be the one. She's appealing to some female voters, and she's got an answer on abortion that I'm not crazy about, but all the all the female voters seem to be responding to. Um, so yeah, I think. I think on balance, it was a winning night for her. Uh-huh. What did you think, Mike? Yeah, I completely agree. This is her like surge, right? And so we're going to see if she can sustain this uh, boomlet. Um, and DeSantis is, uh, has been steady, but this is Nikki's kind of moment to surge. And, and again, we'll see if she can keep it up. Yeah, they're, they're going to have to start peeling back how Nikki has made money post being governor of South Carolina and start to question some of that because if they don't, if they just allow her to continue to debate on policy, she's pretty daggum good at that. Um, so that, it's going to be interesting to see how the, the contest sharpens up. And this is one place, obviously, where Ron DeSantis, I think, has a stellar record is the, is the guy has, has not touched anything in the public sphere to enrich himself. Uh, let's talk about DeSantis. Does he walk away with points after Wednesday night, or does he walk out a net loser? I think he was solid. I think every debate he's pretty much performed the same. He's a good debater uh, or good speaker. You, you can kind of imagine him like on the debate team in high school or Harvard or Yale or these different highly pedigreed uh, educational institutions he's been at. I don't think he ever nails it. I don't think he has like the A-plus moment, but he, he always is solid. Everything he says makes sense, and he's confident in the way he delivers it. Hannah, what do you think? Yeah, I think he's he's a winner because as these debates and as the election wears on, he is steady, right? So he's not flashy. He leaves something to be desired in the charisma category. But as everybody kind of looks around and maybe gives other candidates a look, they, I think they keep coming back to DeSantis. And so the more of these debates, probably the better for him because he, he looks steady, he looks smart, he looks competent. He looks presidential. Yeah, it's it. I agree with you guys. Using the baseball analogy, I think he's the guy that you put in the top of your uh, roster and your batting order every time. You think this guy's going to get a single or double every time. He's not going to be the guy that you know is going to get a home run a lot. You, you just, but he looks presidential. He feels right. Um, so from that standpoint, I think he continues to win what I would call the long term contest. There were a few of his stylistic antics. I mean, there's a, there's a lot in in debates that relate to style, and there was a, <laughs> a few times where he you know pops his head or uh, puts his hands on his hips or things like that that I didn't think worked out well for him. But look, I'm going to tell you guys at the end of the day, they're just, they're still playing for second place, and the reality is that even as volatile as Trump is. You look at the rally he had in Hialeah, look at the kind of week he had on earned media, I don't know that these guys did anything to push him down at all. If anything, I think the guy is stronger than ever before. What do you think about Trump? Yeah, I mean, the, the numbers aren't changing. He's he's at, what, 60 points in most of these polls, so I don't see it changing. Guys, I want to thank you all for an incredible debate wrap-up. Mike Hanna, thank you again, brother, calling in from Alexandria, Virginia. We are rating Trump as the big winner with Ron DeSantis as a close second. That could be the tale of the presidential tape. Thank you for another great segment of America in View. You guys have a great Veterans Day weekend.
Thanks for listening to America in View. For more information, go to AmericaInView.com. Thank you.